I'd said last week, in case you weren't here, that we're heading into the story time of the Bible. So wear your pajamas and bring your cookies and milk. And so didn't mean that literally. But, uh, but uh, here in Joshua, we do have the servant of the Lord who took over after Moses. He wrote the last chapter of the book of Deuteronomy. And uh, now he's writing the book of Joshua, except for the last part, before he dies, and somebody else will write that. So those of you who have stayed with us from Genesis to Deuteronomy have finished one-seventh of the Bible. You've finished what it was called the Torah, or the Pentateuch, meaning the first five books of the Bible. And now we're heading into what's called the historical section of the Old Testament, Joshua to Esther. And then from there you go into the books of poetry and then into the prophetic books. Now the name Joshua is actually uh, two Hebrew words, Yah, which is God, Shua, salvation. God is our salvation. Now his name originally wasn't that. Somewhere along the line his, his name was changed. His original name, according to Numbers 13.8, was Hoshea, uh, the H being Silent Oshia, or Jose, and uh, then it later it was changed to Joshua. He's from the tribe of Ephraim. We find out in First Chronicles chapter seven, verse twenty to twenty-seven. Uh, there is the tribe of Joseph, who had two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and he was from the tribe of Ephraim. And the verses we looked at this morning, verses one through nine, we'll quickly look at them tonight. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun. Now, some say that there's three people in the Bible who never had a dad. Adam, who was made from the dirt, Jesus, who was virgin born, and Joshua, the son of Nun. So, anyway, I know. Bad, bad. Anyway, don't, don't want that. <laughs> so... Does that mean when I get to the victory and we say that the first guy riding a motorcycle in the Bible is Joshua, it says they heard his triumph throughout the land? Just have a triumph motorcycle. Yeah. Anyway. He was Moses' assistant. And uh, so here we see assistants in the Bible. And some ask me, is Wes your assistant or your associate pastor? And uh, I just say it's all abbreviated the same. <clears throat> anyway. Bad, bad. That's what. Uh, <laughs> that's what. Uh, Gellerwin says that one. Thank you. And in verse two, Moses, my servant, is dead. Again, the law cannot bring us into the promised land. It's Joshua, Jesus, the same name Jesus heard growing up as a boy. Yeshua uh, is the one who brings us into the promised land. And it says, So now, therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all the people, to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel. And so it says in Romans 7 that we died to the law so we could marry Jesus Christ. So the law is dead, so now we can arise. The law came through Moses. The truth came through Moses. But we can't handle the truth because the truth is, we are weak and we're sinful. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And how we need both of them in our life. We need grace 
to know God loves us, He forgives us, He's there to strengthen us, that His mercies are new every morning, that when if we fall seven times, He'll pick us up seven times. We need that grace, but we also need the truth. He didn't get rid of the truth. We still need the truth. And so the law is good if it's used rightly, knowing it's main intent is to lead us to see that we need a savior but also jesus said i didn't come to abolish the law but to fulfill it so we're not under the law any longer saying we're trying to keep it to be right with god we're not right with god by our works we're right with god because of his blood on the cross but we're not above the law either that says i don't have to keep it we still need to keep the law we're not to kill anybody. Thou shalt not kill. I don't have to keep the Old Testament law. I can kill people. No, you're not over the Old Testament law. But now in the New Testament, you see, all the Old Testament law could do is bring us up to zero. Don't kill. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't use God's name in vain. So even if you were to do that, it would amount to a big zero. That would be like saying they're having a parade for me this Saturday. Well, why are they having a parade for you? And Well, the mayor's going to honor me because for the last 10 years... I've not killed anybody, nor have I gotten a speeding ticket. But why would they give you a parade and honor you for doing what you're just supposed to do? See, that's the Old Testament law. But the New Testament law says, no, we're not just to not kill people, we're to love our enemies, pray for those who mistreat us, do good to them and bless them. And so the new commandments that Jesus has given us is to love one another and to even love those who hate you and do wrong to you. And so we can now arise saying, yes, the grace of God, God's going to give me the strength. By his power, he's going to give me the ability to do it. And now I can cross over into the promised land with Joshua because God is giving it to us. We're not going to earn it by our works, but we're going to receive it, receive it as a gift from God. And every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, as I said to Moses, from the wilderness of Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, to the great sea, towards the coming, going down of the sun, shall be your territory. 300,000 square miles of promised land, but the most they ever possessed was 30,000 square miles under King David and King Solomon. There's so many precious promises that God wants our foot to trot on to stand on the promise of God, to claim those blessings of God. Now, as we had studied back in Deuteronomy, there were unconditional and conditional promises. Many of the promises are unconditional. Some of the promises are conditional. If you pray, he'll answer your prayer. It is a condition. You have to pray. If you meditate on God's word, then you'll be strong, like a tree planted by the rivers of water. Your leaf won't... Uh, wither nor and you'll bear fruit in your season you see and whatever you do will prosper there's a condition that you have to meditate on god's word then the word of god works but there's those people who say well i know that bible verse but like james says they're not a doer of it and because you're not a doer of it you deceive yourself and so we find that many of the promises of god are conditional upon your acting upon them and so there are some promises, however, that are unconditional and they're universal. God will never leave us or forsake us. He's rich to all who call upon his name, you see. And salvation, the blood of Christ, Jesus Christ died for everybody. And so anybody who comes to Christ can come. It's unconditionally, he will is there to receive you. Now, God wants us to put our foot on all the promises of God, to know all 3,000 of the promises of God. And I encourage you to get a little 
booklet of some type and to start making a journal you can hang on to. Put the date. Put the verses that you've read. Put a, write a particular verse or phrase that God's speaking to your heart. Make a note what the Lord spoke to you and meditate it, claim it, hang on to it. And then as things start getting bumpy down the road, you can look back through the years of the various promises that God spoke to you and refresh, rekindle. And it helps you remember the works that you once did if you lose that first love as we see the church in Ephesus. And you can remember the things that God has spoken to you. Remember the heart and the time that God was so energizing you, causing you to be on fire for Him. And you can go back to those works that you did at the beginning. And in verse 5, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. There's no partiality with God. Whatever God would do with Moses, God will do with you. All the promises are yea and amen. I will not leave you, nor will I forsake you. So if you're feeling inferior to any Christians today, stop it. There's no reason to feel inferior. God loves all his children equally. God loves you as much as he loves Moses, as much as he loves Joshua. God loves his son the same way he loves you. There's no difference. And so come to him with full confidence and assurance that God loves you, desires you, wants you. Be strong, though, of good courage, for to this people you shall divide an inheritance, the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. He's going to say this four times in this chapter. I think he wants us to catch it. Be strong and courageous, that you may observe to do according to all the law of which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? He already has twice. Here's a third time. Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. The reality is, is that these people didn't listen to Moses. He was standing next to Moses on a number of occasions when they were ready to kill Moses, stone him to death. And he was also there when he came back with the other ten spies and him and Caleb. Caleb, all twelve of them came back from the promised land and they said, let us arise, let us go. There he was being a leader and they said, stone him. His first act of a leader is kill him. When he rose up in faith and he said, no, the Lord delights in us and he will conquer our enemies. He will give them into our hands and they'll be our bread and butter. Let's stop this nonsense talk and let's go. They said, let's kill him. So he's already seen how violent these people can be when they're being stretched out of their comfort zone. But you see, that's a job of the leader. To stretch us, to say, no, don't keep thinking in that small way you're thinking. Don't keep thinking in that negative way you're thinking. Don't quit, quit thinking in that box. Get out of the box and see the whole perspective. You know, the year that somebody broke the four-minute mile, within six months, dozens of people did it all the way around the world. Broke the four-minute mile. But for years, it just couldn't be done. Couldn't happen. But then one day, a guy did it, and then all of a sudden, everybody says, it can be done. So everybody starts doing it within the next several weeks. 
I can pick up my pace. No, I can't run any faster. My legs won't move any faster. My lungs are about ready to explode. It's impossible to move this body any faster. Somebody already did. Oh, then all of a sudden they do it. In the same way, we can get this limitness in our mind and God comes and he speaks to us and it, it, is, it is a sharp two-edged sword because it pierces us and it says, look, the way you're looking at the world around you, stop looking at it that way. The Bible says that we can rejoice in everything and in everything give thanks. I don't like that because that doesn't make room for complaining. And I've perfected it. <laughs> that means I can't complain about work or can't complain about the rise in the electric bill. I can't complain about my kids. I can't complain about my neighbors. I can't. I got to stop the complaining. That's right. And everything give thanks. Wow. That's sort of an extreme statement. God says it, and he says it, and again I say rejoice. Emphatically he says it. The Bible says that we're to meditate on God's word day and night. The Bible says we're to pray without ceasing. The Bible says a lot of extreme things, but maybe they're only extreme because we're in these fleshly bodies and we've seen few people who have actually done it. D.L. Moody says, God, the world has not yet seen what God can do with somebody who has wholly surrendered to him. It's not yet happened. But I read through church history and I can see of the revivals and it's just a handful, sometimes one man who just says, that's it. God, I just surrender all to you and I give myself wholly to your service. And within days, if not the whole world, a section of the whole world is shaken powerfully. John Knox said, give me Scotland or I die. God gave him Scotland. Mr. Wallace said, I'm going to draw a circle around myself and until God has revived everything in this circle, I'm not stepping out of it. And there as he stayed in that circle, God revived him. And then he shook all of Wells. God will work with you. God will work in you and through you if you'll come and dedicate yourself wholly to the Lord. The Bible says God's eyes are moving to and fro throughout the whole earth to find somebody whose heart is complete towards him. And he will take you and lift you up and show the world, see, I am strong and I do work powerfully. If you have that heart of surrender to God. My job as a church is to say, guys, let's get out of the land of bondage. Let's get out of the wilderness. Let's get into the promised land. Let's take all the inheritance. And that's my job as a pastor, to rebuke, to convince, to exhort with all long suffering and patience to say, God has so much for us. Let's make sure we get all that God wants for us. Let's make sure we receive all that God has planned for us. The Bible makes it clear in Romans 15 and also 2 Corinthians 10 that these are examples for us to whom the ends of the ages have now fallen fallen to. <laughs> the ends of the ages fallen to us and what are we to look at them? We're to say, God said, go in and possess all of the land, Joshua. And he gives a description of 300,000 square miles. We discover they didn't even get even 10% at that time. They didn't even, they, they inhabited somewhere between 1 and 5% of the land at that time. Later on, David came hundreds of years from now and got a whole bunch more land up to 10%, but that was it. 
The Bible says that when the word of God falls in the heart, it falls upon a good and an understanding heart. But even then, the word of God sometimes produces only 30-fold, sometimes only 60-fold, but it can produce a hundredfold. If you're willing, God will do it. And so the key is, is that the word of God has to be our delight. And in it, we meditate day and night. We give ourselves wholly to the Word of God, to be experts in the Word of God, to be lovers of the Word of God, and to constantly be meditating on God's Word. This is the first time in the Bible, 27 times in the Old Testament it's used, and the whole concept of, of it is actually groaning, or roaring like a lion, or cooing like a dove. To meditate, to ponder, to contemplate on God's Word, and it to be stirred up and to speak it to yourself. The Hebrews believed that you had to speak the Word of God and it would speak back to you. If you never have the Word of God in your mouth, they would say, the Word of God will never talk to you. So they would read the Word of God and they would meditate on it by having it talked in their mouth. And they would, in their mouth, chew on it like a cow chews and goes down to one stomach and then comes up and chews again, goes down into a deeper stomach. So God wants it to come deeper in your soul, deeper in your heart, deep down in your gut until it permeates every part of your existence. Your thoughts, your hearts, your attitudes, your mind, every word that you speak would be constantly speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, having that melody in your heart unto the Lord, that there's this walk where we're just in the communion with God, not reading the Word of God, but feeding upon the Word of God, eating it up, dissolving it in all that God would say to us through His Word. And then the prosperity and the good success would come. And again, prosperity and success to me is having an intimacy with my family and growing in the love of God and being fruitful all the days of my life. Not possessing more and owning more and having more power and prestige and none of those things delight my heart. But to be a simple lover of God. To have the power to read the Bible, to have the strength to pray without ceasing and to have a life that's a light and a salt and a blessing to others. That's prosperity. Such a life, as simple as it is, will not happen easily. It's not walking and picking flowers out of a garden. It's fighting hill by hill the battle. In Deuteronomy 17, God said, one day you're going to ask for a king. And when you do, tell him not to multiply horses to himself, lest he lean upon his own strength in military battle. Not to multiply wives to himself, that he's distracted in covetousness and lust. That he's not to multiply gold and silver to himself, to say, yes, you know, I'm a wealthy man and I can have security in my wealth. But he's to write down the words of the law. He was to write out, some say that few quotes, some say the whole writings of Moses. But he was to write it out, and every single day he was to read it. Not one king ever did that. Not one king ever wrote it out. Not one king ever read it every day. What a simple command. But not one king ever did it. And as we get into Samuel, there we see in 2 Samuel, first of all, David hamstrung all of the horses except for a few. He, he was destroying all the chariots, but there he conquered a country at a thousand chariots and he kept a hundred of them. The next thing we read is that he multiplied 
gold and silver to himself. The next thing we read is it gives the list of his wives. And then the very next thing, he falls with Bathsheba. We see him multiplying horses, wives, and gold and silver to himself. And there, the very next chapter, he falls into sin and commits murder, which ends up causing the entire country to be split, ultimately through his son Solomon. And hardship and difficulty came upon his life as the sword never left his house because of that sin. And I say to you, be strong and of good courage because there's not going to be a lot of other Christians who's willing to run the pace with you. It's always good to have somebody running next to you to help you keep up the pace, to encourage you. But I'm telling you, get your eyes on Jesus. Follow the example of Paul because there's not going to be many around who are willing to do what the Bible says. A lot of wonderful Christians, but not strong Christians. A lot of wonderful people, but not fruitful people as God would have us to be fruitful. Love every believer. Love them all. But grieve for many. Because you see what they're doing and what they could do. You see what they're experiencing and what they could be experiencing. You see their life, and it's not all that God had planned for them to experience. And I want to say, God, I want all that you have for my life. I don't care the hardship. I don't care the difficulty. I don't care the price. I want all that you have for me. I don't want to miss out on any experience, any work, any word. I don't want to miss anything that you have for me. I want it all. The degree of love that you can put into this heart of mine, I want it. The amount of fruitfulness, the amount of work these hands can do, the amount of words this mouth can say, Wherever these feet are to go, I don't want to miss out on one step of this life that you have planned for me to experience. And hopefully every one of us wants to go in and grab all 300,000 square miles. We want to claim every promise that God has for us. And there the anointing would be upon you wherever you go. Going back to Deuteronomy 28. You're in the city, out in the country. You walk in, you go out, wherever you go, God's blessings would be upon your life. Well, in verse 10... Then Joshua commanded the officers of the people, saying, Pass through the camp and command the people, saying, Prepare provisions for yourself, for within three days you will cross over this Jordan to go and to possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Notice here, three days. Begin to prepare your heart. Begin to prepare your mind. Get ready to go into the land. God is not a God of the urgent. God has his timing. God has his ways. And here God says, three days we're going to head on in. And to the Reubenites and the Gadites and half of the tribe of Manasseh now, Joshua spoke saying, remember the word which Moses the servant of the Lord commanded you saying, the Lord your God has given you rest and is giving you this land. Your wives and your little ones and your livestock shall remain in the land which Moses gave you on this side of the Jordan. But you shall pass before your brethren armed all your mighty men of valor and help them until the Lord has given your brethren rest as he has given you and they and also have taken possessions of the land which the Lord your God has given them. Then you shall return to the land of your possessions and enjoy it which Moses the Lord's servant gave you on this side of the Jordan towards the sunrise. And they answered, that is the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh, all that you command us we will do and wherever you send us we will go. Just as we heeded Moses in all things. Yikes, that's a scary statement. So we will heed you. Only the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. You better look like 
a prestigious, powerful leader. Whoever rebels against your command and does not heed your words in all that you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and of good courage. So here now they're saying, it. being a wimp, Joshua, you've got to be a man like Moses was a man. Now, remember back, the Reubenites and the Gadites said, oh, we want to stay on this side of the Jordan. And Moses said, oh, don't do that. Go into the promised land. But because they were unwilling, they would rather have a livelihood rather than a life. They would rather stay in the green grass for their cattle than go over into the promised land to raise children. Their concern was monetary rather than spiritual. Their concern was building up the business rather than building up the family. Their focus was wrong, and because of that, they were the first to be attacked. They were the first to be taken captive. They were the first to be polluted by other nations. And the time Jesus came on the scene, remember he went over to the other side of Galilee, to the area of the Gad Arians. And they still had the philosophy of life. Whatever makes the most bucks, that's what we're going to do. And they were raising pigs, which was unlawful for Jews to do. And there they, spiritually, things were completely out of control. There was a couple of guys who lived in the tombs, completely naked, and they were wild men. And they would get big chains, which is expensive in those days. Metal was not cheap. But they put out the bucks, and they got chains to try to take care of these guys, and they chained them down with the biggest and the best chains, and they just ripped them away. And they continued to run wild there in the tombs of Gadareans. And when Jesus came, he put them in their right mind, casting the demons out. And the men of the Gadarenes came out, these Reubenites, these Gadites, the half-tribe of Manasseh, and they said, Whoa, get away from us. Leave us alone. Leave right now. They weren't spiritually prepared for what God had for their life. And they're an example of those Christians who want to Stay where they're at spiritually, not move forward into the land that God would have us to, land, to, to live in. And even now, as they're speaking, oh, all that Moses said will do. Moses said, let all of the men who are 20 years and older cross over and go into the land to fight. Now, if you add those up, all the tribe of Manasseh would be 136,930. There was 43,730. This is coming from Numbers 26. 43,730 Reubenites, 40,500 Gadites, 52,700 tribe of the Manassehites. Half of that would be 26,350. So there was at least 110,580, possibly up to 136,930. You got all those numbers? Okay. Study it on your own. Numbers 26. But if you look over in chapter 4, notice there in verse 13, they came and they crossed over the armed men of the children of Israel. How many? 40,000 men prepared for war. Not even a third, or a third, not barely a third of the people went over. Not even a third of the people went over. 40,000 men when they had 136 to 110,000 men. So they weren't going to obey the word of the Lord. They were going to do the minimum contribution that they had to do. They were going to do the minimum amount they had to do. Now the other tribes, they took their wives, their kids, their livestock. Everything went with them over to battle. Everybody, all the tribes, all the men of war, including all of their family went. But here, all of these men's family 
are going to suffer the consequences of not entering into the promised land. Men, I say to you, be the leaders in the home. A few weeks ago, I was here with Wes and Dan, I believe, and, and uh, Bill Osborne, and we just, Saturday night, we just said, let's hang out and pray. We were just after the Saturday night service, just hanging out and praying and and worshiping, and, and it was just a neat time. And my son Nathan likes to hang out with me, and he was banging on the drums and going out and playing a little bit and getting a drink of water and come back in and sitting down, listen to us pray a little bit. And at the end there, I said, guys, just lay hands on me and pray for me. And so we began to lay hands on each other, and, and, and there they were praying for me. And unbeknownst, I didn't know, my son Nathan came up. And he laid his hands, and he just began to pray. The most beautiful and elegant prayer. This 10-year-old boy. It was powerful. It brought, it brought all of us to tears. But he just said, oh, God, thank you for my dad. What an example he is as a Christian. And, Lord, thank you that often I go into his room early in the morning and find him on his knees praying. And just, it was powerful. Just how it's affected this 10-year-old boy. And I just, thank you, Lord that you've given him this impression of me. <laughs> I, I want to be that guy. <laughs> How healing it is to the kids. How healing it is to the wife. How healing it is to the single gals out there looking at the single guys. To see men of God not compromising but going all the way into the promised land, not giving the minimum amount of contribution, but going all the way with everything they have, giving it all to the service of the Lord, not with their lips as the Gadites are doing here to Joshua, but in deed and in truth. May God make us men of God in this church. The Bible says that God desire, it says in 1 Timothy 2, that men would get together everywhere, lifting up holy hands and praying. Guys, that we would be here. That our 5.30 prayer meeting, the gals might be outside with the kids or the gals might be out talking, but if you were to come into the church here, half of the guys here at the 5.30, or half of the people at the 5.30 prayer meeting, just a group of men. The Saturday morning prayer meetings, a group of men get together. We have various prayer meetings that we just, you'd hear the men pray. There's just, I can't wait for our men's retreat coming up here. It's just so healing to have a room of about, you know, 150, 160, 180 guys in there just going for it, singing, praying, crying out to God. A group of men hearing the Word of God. You know, we have several women's prayer meetings but not as many men prayer meetings. It shouldn't be that way. It should be the opposite. We have many women's studies going on. We have few men's studies going on. It shouldn't be that way. It's flip-flopped, you see. It's supposed to be the other way around, where the men are the dominant spiritual leaders. And so Joshua now is hearing, yeah, I need to be strong and courageous. And these guys are saying, just like we obeyed Moses, we'll obey you. And I'm sure that made Joshua all the more concerned about being strong and courageous because they never obeyed Moses very well. But in their minds they did. That's sort of scary too. Oh yeah, we really did exactly what Moses wanted us to do. Well, in chapter 2, now Joshua, the son of Nun, 
sent out two men from the Acacia Grove, or Shittim, to spy secretly, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came to the house of a harlot named Rahab and lodged there. Now you say, Oh, no, they're sending spies again. You're right. Remember Deuteronomy. They sent 12 spies in because the people wanted to know if they could conquer the land. Joshua is not sending them in to see if they can do it. He's saying how they can do it. So there's a different spirit. And so again, often it's not what you're doing, but it's how you're doing it. You can say, well, I'll read 10 chapters of the Bible a day. Okay, I read it. Now I'm done. It's not, it's not going to do you any good. It's how you do it. That your heart's full of devotion and worship, and you're wanting to hear from God and receive from God. And here we see that now he's handpicked the future Caleb and Joshua. I'm sure he picked two men that had the same heart of Joshua and Caleb. The same exact heart as them, sending these guys in, two men of incredible faith. Not letting any weaker brethren who aren't full of faith in the Holy Spirit, not let them go in. So what would happen before it would happen again? Handpicked guys, he could only find two. Which is all Moses could find too. But he sent ten other guys in and ruined it. They're going into the land to survey it, to see how they would conquer the land. Now, you say, well, this seems fleshly. You're right. It is. This is Joshua getting ahead of the Lord. And we're going to find out when we get over to the end of chapter 4 that the Lord, or end of chapter 5, that the Lord opposes Moses. He's there as a soldier with his sword drawn, and he's going, ah, you know, he sees this big soldier in front of him. And God says, I am the Lord of the commander of God's armies. Take off your shoes and worship. It wasn't an angel of the Lord. It was a theophany, Jesus Christ. Because later on in the Gospel of John, when an angel does appear, John begins to worship, and they say, get up, get up. Don't worship us. We're just an angel. But here he says, take off your shoes and worship. And he receives it. So it's not an angel. It's actually a theophany of Jesus Christ. And so he is getting ahead of the Lord by sending these spies in. But nevertheless, God turns everything around for good to those who love God and are called according to purpose. But you don't want to get ahead of the Lord. Now it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. So the king found out about it, and the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the country. Then the woman took the two men and hid them, and she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I do not know where they were from. And it happened that the gate was being shut when it was dark, that the men went out. Where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly, for you may overtake them. But she had brought them up in the roof and hid them under the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. Then the men pursued them by the road to the Jordan, to the fords, and as soon as those who pursued them had gone out, they shut the gate. Now, this is interesting here. Jericho is an incredible city. As a matter of fact, the ruins are there today. A matter of fact, the oldest ruins or the oldest sign of civilization is Jericho, the city of Jericho. You hear all the evolutionists say, oh, the cavemen, prove it. <laughs> Where do you find a civilization of men living in caves? You're not going to find it. You find various times in the Middle Ages people living in caves. But you don't find an old civilization of cave people. You don't have it. That's all a theory. It's, there's no historical fact. 
the oldest historical civilization proven is Jericho. And it wasn't caves. It was an incredible city. Interesting, it's the only city where the runs, where the walls of the city are fallen outward. And you can actually go today and go to that Jericho Tell, about nine acres of city, and there you can still see the actual tops. Of course, the level is much higher now than it was then, but actually some of the towers remained um, after the walls had fallen out, and you can still see the top of the very towers that these men saw in that day. It's pretty radical to look at those stones going, whoa, Joshua was looking at these same stones. They walked around this same exact city. And it was an incredible fruitful valley that they went into. Now, you might wonder why these men went to a prostitute's house. Um, good question. Again, times were different than they are today. And... Uh, I personally believe it's because she was the only person of faith. And God directed these men to the place where there was somebody, a believer. Have you ever noticed that God directs your paths to other believers? And I believe that God directed them to another, another believer. And we see this woman, that she was an incredible believer in God. And it says in verse 8, So before they lay down, she came up on the root, to them on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord, the word here at Lord is Yahweh. She gave the sacred name of God. She knew the name of God, which is the same as knowing the nature of God. There's power in that name. Remember when Jesus came to the area of Gadarenes, he was casting out the demons and they didn't come out. And finally the man fell down before him. He says, what is your name? And he said, my name is Legion, for they are many. The Jewish people cast out demons, but they could never cast out the demon until they knew the name. When you know the name, you know the nature. And when you know the nature, you have the power over um, that entity. And by her knowing, the name of Yahweh was a powerful understanding. And she says, I know that the Lord, Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, the Tetragrammaton, has given you the land. So I know it. It's a fact. See the faith of this woman. That the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint, have fainted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. This is radical because all the pagan societies had many gods. And she's saying, I know there is one God, and he's the God of Israel. Now, therefore, I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, by the Tetragrammaton, YHWH, Yahweh, since I have shown you kindness, that you also will show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token. And spare my father and my mother and my brothers, my sisters, and all that they have, and deliver our lives from death. So the men answered her, Our lives for your lives, if none of you... If none of you tell this business of ours, and it shall be when, notice the, men of, notice the faith of these men, when, not if, when the Lord has given us the land, that we will deal kindly and truly with you. Then she let them down by the rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall. She dwelt on the wall. 
And she said to them, Get to the mountain, lest the pursuers meet you. Hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Afterwards, you may go your way. Then the men said to her, We will be blameless of this oath of yours, which you have made to us, unless when we come into the land, you bind this line of scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you bring your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household to your own home. So it shall be that whoever goes outside the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we will be guiltless. Whoever is with you in the house, his blood shall be on your head if a hand is laid on him. And if you tell this business of ours, then we will be free from your oath which you made to us, made us swear. Then she said, According to your words, so be it. And she sent them away, and they departed, and she bound the scarlet cord in the window. So evidently the cord or the rope that they were lowered down was indeed this scarlet rope and this red rope. And they're saying, hey, tie this rope in the window. Now, the city of Jericho actually had one outer wall, then about 15 feet, and then another wall, which is interesting. Archaeology has discovered. And so she was on the very outside, the outer wall, and then there was 15 feet and then another wall. And it seemed like a, a city that could not uh, be penetrated. But nevertheless, she knew that God would give him into their hand. Now, this is an interesting story. Because this gal Rahab, a lot of incredible things have been said about her. As a matter of fact, if you read the chapter, Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, you'll find a lot of incredible men of God not mentioned in there. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Daniel, Elijah, Elisha, all these incredible men of faith aren't even in the book of Hebrews. But yet, in Hebrews chapter 11, Rahab is mentioned. Also interesting that this woman Rahab became the great, great, great grandmother of King David and in Matthew chapter 1 when the lineage of Jesus Christ our Messiah, our Savior is listed Rahab, this prostitute, this pagan woman is mentioned in there in Matthew chapter 5 verse 1. And when James gives us this, the understanding of faith without works is dead he uses, of course, Abraham, the father of our faith this great man of God, and says, by faith, Abraham was declared a believer when he offered up his son Isaac. He didn't just say, I believe in God, but he acted out his faith, and that's where we knew he was a believer. The other person he gives is Rahab. Radical. She's the only other woman outside of Sarah in the hall of faith. She's listed as the, in the lineage of Jesus the Messiah. She grabbed on in faith and she believed the Lord. And the Bible says by her hiding these spies and lying to, these, to the king that her faith was revealed and by the, the works of faith that she exhibited, it was clear that she was a true believer in God and God saved her by that faith that she put in God by hiding these men. Now, faith, we see exhibited here, the true saving faith in Rahab. You see, faith actually has three parts. There's first the historical faith. Fidus Historia. And that's where you say, 
oh, I believe in the facts. Do you believe Abraham Lincoln was the President of the United States? Yes, Abraham Lincoln, I believe in that fact. Well, do you believe Jesus Christ walked the face of this earth? It's a historical fact. There's more written about Jesus Christ than any other man. Our whole dating system is, is around him. You, I've met complete atheists who don't deny the existence of Jesus Christ on this earth. It's a historical fact. That's the first step. The facts are there before you, and you say, I believe the facts. Now, she said, all of the people, when they heard what God had done with you, all of the people's hearts melted within them. They believed the facts. They didn't believe it was just a theory. They believed it was a fact that God really brought them out of Egypt, that God really caused them to cross the Red Sea, that God really took out Sion and the king of Og, these two other countries far more powerful than them, and, and God did it, and they believed it. They believe those facts. The second is the ascent, a census, the ascent to emotionally, I agree. And emotionally, the people agreed. They were saying, oh, the melt, their hearts melted within them. And she said, my heart melted within me. But to ascent to it, to believe those facts, emotionally say, yes, I believe it to be true. Yes, I agree in my heart that this is true. That would be like going to a person who smokes and, said, and say to him, you know, it says on the side of that cigarette that it can cause cancer. And you know, there's a lot of people that died of lung cancer and other cancers from smoking. Do you believe that? I don't think you'll find anybody who says, oh, no, impossible. You know, smoking is actually good for my health. You know, I, I, I mean, historically, they know it's not good for them. Does that mean they quit smoking? No. I mean, you could take a guy next to the deathbed of some guy cuffing up blood, you know, uh, because he spent 30 years smoking. It doesn't mean he's not going to, after talking to the guy and seeing him spit up blood for an hour, he's not going to walk outside and light up another cigarette. He probably will. You could have the guy emotionally stirred, saying, emotionally, I know this is going to kill me. Emotionally, I know that as I light this up, I've got a habit, I'm going to light up another one, and I've already been doing it for 10 years, and as far as I know, I'm going to be doing it another 20 years, and I know I need to stop as he lights up another one. <laughs> emotionally, he knows he needs to stop, but he still, that doesn't mean he's going to stop. So there's the historical fact. There's the emotion, the, the, the surrender of saying, yes, I agree with it. Emotionally, it's true. These people, all of the people of Jericho, believe the facts. They emotionally assented to it. Their hearts melted within them. That didn't mean they were saved. There's the third step of faith. And that's where you have the will is given over and you act. How do you know that the will is given over? It's clear in your life. You see, if the king had really said, he is the Lord, the God of the heavens and the earth, he would have just put out a white flag and said, come in, what do you want? You want us all to leave? We'll leave, because we know we're dead if we don't. They still fought against the children of Israel. They still closed up the city and said, we're against them. But this lady Rahab betrayed her own people. She said, I know these guys are as good as dead in a few days anyway, so what good is... Because I know God is with you and he's the only true God and there's no other way of salvation except through him. I'm dead unless I give in to your God. And I know that to be true. And we see not just an emotion, we see the will surrender. She takes these men, she hides these men. She makes a covenant with these men. She believes their words. We will not kill you. If life for life, you save us now, we'll save you later. She says, I believe you. 
we see her life acting out. And so there's, it says in James that you say, I believe in God. Well, he says the demons do that. So what? Well, with our mouth. We say, Jesus is Lord. So do the demons. They worshipped him. They were angels in heaven. They bowed down and worshipped him. They believed he was God. Read about the demons that Jesus cast out. They fell down before, oh, son of God, you know. They believed in him. They believed in his name. They, it says they hear the name of Jesus, they shudder. <gasps> Ooh, those demons, it says in James 2, they shake when they hear his name. Emotionally, intellectually, historical knowledge. Emotionally, they shake at the name of Jesus. But they're not saved. And this is why he says, faith without works is dead. To say that historically or emotionally is enough, and 97% of America have this concept of faith. Oh, I believe in God. That's it. That's all I need. Oh, I believe in the Bible. That's all it takes. I believe every word of the Bible. Do you read it? Well, no. Do you know the Bible says to read it? Well, you know. Uh, doesn't mean I'm going to do it. But yeah, sure, I could say that. You're living with your girlfriend. Do you know the Bible says that if you live in fornication, that you will not inherit the kingdom of God? Well, you know, now, not. I don't know if I can agree with everything. You know, a lot of that stuff is ancient writings and, you know, you have to interpret it into modern day. And When push comes to shove, when you say, apply it, all of a sudden, now you don't believe it. It would be no different if you were out in the jungle and you had a medical book with you and there you're bitten by a certain snake. And there the medical book, you open up, and there's that type of state, snake, and there you see the cure for it. And you said, historically, I believe that this book is accurate. And man, I, I emotionally agree that this is the truth, that how I'm going to be saved. But none of that's going to help you. You're going to die. Unless you take the formula out of the book, do the mixture, heat up whatever needs to be heated up, and prepare it, and shoot it into your body. It's not going to help you. And many people say, I believe in God. I have a Bible. They, you go to their house, and sure enough, you know, five by five, you know, on their coffee table, and, you know, there it is. Open up the front cover, and there for a hundred years, all the people who were born and died in their family lineage. But yet, they themselves are going to go to hell. It's not going to do them any good until you surrender of that will and do what the Word of God says. That is the sign that you've really believed. How? As you give yourself volitionally to do, then you know true saving faith has taken place. So when you say, Jesus Christ, be the Lord of my life, and now you're ready to act in following Him, now you're truly saved. Well, how do I know if I've really surrendered my life? Time will tell. Every tree is known by its fruit. No good tree can bear bad fruit, and no bad tree can bear good fruit. How do I know? Well, have you really surrendered your life to God? I, I think I have. Well, are you doing what God says? Jesus says, why do you say, Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? So faith without works is dead, but when we truly have saving faith, at that moment you're saved. Well, how do I know I have true saving faith? Your life will show it. The explanation of your decisions will reveal it. The reality will be there. So in other words, what happened in your heart will truly be visible on the outside through your works. If you say, man, I'm not going to be riding this bike anymore. I bought a brand new Corvette Stingray. Wow. And next week we see you riding your bike. 
where is it? Oh, well, it, you know, it's at home in my garage. Next week, we see you on your bicycle again. Well, why did you bring it out of the garage? Well, you know, I'm doing a little work on it still, you know, a little buffing and polishing. And Six months later, we still see you on your bicycle. We've never seen that Corvette. What do we start thinking? There is no Corvette anywhere. In the same way, the person who says, Jesus is Lord, and I believe the Bible, and I'm going to follow him, and there's no evidence of a life following after God. We have to say, there was no volitional will. There may have been historical, there may have been an emotional, but there was no true surrender of will where Jesus Christ truly became the Lord, or we would see it in your life. But with this woman, Rahab, we see it in her life. She makes the steps that are just logical to her. I mean, if she really believed that there is one God and that one God is Israel, then we would see that in her life. If she really believed that in a few days they're going to come and they're going to conquer her people, then it really isn't wrong for her to betray them, is it? And if she really believes that she will not be alive, nor will her family be alive, except through the one way of surrendering to their God, then we would see her do it. And we see her doing that very thing. I'm going to bring my family here. We're going to save them. Here, let me lower you down to the... Get out there and hide. And, you know, I want these guys alive because they're my only lifeline between, you know, me and the God of Israel. I've got to make sure you guys are alive. I'm going to hide you here. I'm going to... Man, I'll go out there and hide and hang out for three days and, and then get on back, you see. So it was clear in her lifestyle that she was a believer by her actions, by what she did. And God honored her faith. She became the great-great-great-grandmother of King David. She became the lineage of Jesus Christ. She was in the hall of faith as a believer in God. And we see that James used her. We have the father of our faith, a man, a Jew, and we have a woman who's a pagan and a prostitute. And a woman, according to the Jewish culture, was way down there. You have two people on the opposite ends of the spectrum. The first man of faith, the first Jew. You have a woman, a pagan, a prostitute. But no matter what spectrum you're on, if you will believe on Jesus Christ, you will be saved. And that is the hope that we have. No matter what you've done, no matter what your past may be, no matter how weak or feeble, no matter how far down on the social rung you may be, if you will trust in God, you will be saved. And God will elevate you even to be the lineage of the greatest king that ever existed. You know the number one title Jesus used for himself? I'm the son of David. That's the number one title he used. I'm of the tribe of David. I'm of, of, of the lineage of David. That's the, the term he kept using over and over again for himself. He loved King David. And here this woman was the grandfather of David or the grandmother, excuse me, the great-great-grandmother of King David, and she was also the great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother according to Jesus, according to the flesh, which is just phenomenal. Two people in history, according to God, that would be the people you would want to be associated with, and she was. And so, when, notice these men of faith, when the Lord has given us the land, there's no uncertainty in their mind, there was no uncertainty in her mind. And in chapter 2, verse 22... 
Then they departed and went to the mountain and stayed there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers sought them along the way, but they did not find them. So the two men returned, descended from the mountain, and crossed over, and they came to Joshua the son of Nun and told them all that had been fallen, befallen them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has delivered all the land into our hands, for indeed all the inhabitants of the country are faint-hearted because of us. So their hearts were encouraged, going, All right. They're all scared to death. I love that. God's doing a work. He's putting the fear. He had promised that. In the book of Exodus, he said, I'll put my fear upon them. And they would just be so afraid. And you would be able to conquer them. And indeed, they did that. And in chapter 3, then Joshua rose early in the morning. This is something we see of Joshua time and time again. In chapter 6, verse 12, in chapter 7, verse 16, in chapter 8, verse 10, Joshua rose early. Moses rose early. King David rose early. Jesus rose early. We find it all the way through the Bible. The men of God that he lifts up as examples, all of them, rose early in the morning and they set out from the Acacia Grove, from Shedem, and came to the Jordan and he and all the children of Israel and lodged there before they crossed over. It was after three days that the officers went through the camp and they commanded the people saying, When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the priests and the Levites bearing it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. Again, three days is significant because it was on the third day that our Lord raised from the dead. It's on the third day that they're going to cross over into the promised land. The scarlet thread was the red thread. Again, they had red blood on the doorpost back in Exodus. And now we see the red thread representing the blood of Christ. How was Rahab saved? By the cross of Christ in the future. We in the New Testament look back in history to the Christ, to the cross of Christ. In the Old Testament, they look forward to the cross of Christ. So the red scarlet thread is representing the blood that Jesus Christ would shed on the cross. And that's how she is saved. And so now they set out the third day. Christ is risen from the dead. They're heading on. Salvation is going to come even to the Gentiles. How? Through the blood of Jesus Christ. All a symbol and a type here. Yet there shall be a space between you and it, about 2,000 cubits by measure, about three-quarters of a mile. Do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you must go, for you have not passed this way before. We need to understand that God is in heaven and we are on earth. We need to understand that we pray, Our Heavenly Father, who art in heaven. There always needs to be that awe and that respect and that godly fear of the Lord. It doesn't say, Our Heavenly Buddy, <laughs> Our Pally Wally, who art in heaven. It doesn't say that. God is not our pal. God is not our buddy we slap on the back. He's our Father, and we have that intimacy with Him, but we also realize who's in heaven. And so we need to have that awe and that respect. It's sort of like the lion tamer in the circus. He may hang out inside with those lions, but he also always has that sense that that lion, all he has to do is give one swipe, and he's cut in half. Or you see the guy who tames the bear and, and there for the movies, you know, he's having the guy wrestle around with the bear. In reality, one squeeze of that bear's hand and you're crushed. In the same way, we need to realize it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Even as a believer, he's awesome. 
And we see even his dear friends like John, who fellowshiped with him for three years. But yet when he saw Christ in the book of Revelation, it says he fell down as a dead man. Before that, Jesus, he used to hang out around the bonfires. But when he saw him no longer according to the flesh, he saw him in the fire of heaven. He fell down as a dead man before Christ. And so again, we need to understand that we once knew him according to the flesh, but we know him according to the flesh no more. And so God is leading us in a path that we have not been that way before. And we need to have this awe and this respect and this fear and to give space going, God, you lead us. Often we're up in front of God going, come on, God, you know, you know, this way, that way, which way, you know, oh, back there three miles. Oh, okay, well, let's go back, you know. It's not the way the Christian walk is to go. We're to be in awe and respect, following the presence of God, being led in awe of God. Don't get too close lest you die. And don't be too far back that you don't see where he's heading. But be on his hills following the Lord. And Joshua said to the people, Sanctify yourself, for tomorrow the Lord will, be, will do wonders among you. So make yourself holy, sanctify, set yourself apart. Boy, what an important principle to understand. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, it says that we're to be a vessel sanctified, set apart for the master's use. In God's house, there's vessels of gold and silver, but there's also vessels of clay and earthenware. You see, in the master's house, there's incredible decorations of gold and silver. But there's also the spittoon and the toilet and the wash pot. This is the analogy Paul gives in 1 Timothy 2. And in those days, they didn't have garbage disposals or toilets, they would just put a lid on it and take it and throw it over the city wall. And he's saying, in God's house, you may be there, you may be a vessel of God, but you're not honored. You're not set aside for the master's use. Therefore, you're used for a lesser duty. So you want to be that pot that God uses. You want to be that glass that's all cleaned out. And you, if you were to go into reach into your cabinet and you look in there, and there, even if there's a small, small little spot on the side... Looks like a little dried booger on the side, you know. All it is is a little bit of leftover tomato juice that didn't quite come out or whatever it is. You just like, ah, you know, put that thing aside and reach in and grab another. God is no different. <laughs> God is no different. He wants clean, holy, consecrated vessels to use. And that's where we need to come and realize, hey, every day we need to set ourselves aside to be holy and prepared for the use of God. And so he's saying, get yourself ready. And Joshua spoke to the priest saying, take up the ark 16 times in chapter 3 and 4, which are relatively short chapters, 16 times the ark is mentioned. Because without the presence of God, we cannot move forward. So take up the ark of God, but you don't dare touch the presence of God until you're consecrated, set apart for God's use. Take the ark of the covenant, the crossover before the people. So they took up the ark of the covenant and went before the people. And the Lord said to Joshua, This day I will begin to magnify you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. You shall command the priest to bear the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When you have come to the edge of the water of Jordan, you shall stand in the Jordan. 
So Joshua said to the children of Israel, Come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, By this you shall know that the living God is among you, that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, and the Amorites, and the Jebusites. And once they're dead, we won't have to say their names anymore. And behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over before you into Jordan. Now therefore, take for yourself twelve men from among the tribes of Israel, one man from every tribe, and it shall come to pass, as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests who bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, that the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off, the waters that come down from upstream, and they shall stand as the heap. So it was, when the people set out from there and camped to cross over the Jordan with the priests bearing the ark of the covenant before the people and as those who bore the ark came to the Jordan and the feet of the priest who were bore the ark dipped in the edge of the water for the Jordan overflows all its banks during the whole time of the harvest that the waters which came down from upstream stood still and rose in a heap very far away at, at, at Adam about 12 miles away and the city that is besides Zartan so the waters that went down into the sea of uh, Arabah, the salt sea, fell and were cut off, and the people crossed over opposite Jericho. Then the priest who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel crossed over on dry ground until all the people had crossed completely over the Jordan. The Red Sea, Moses touched it with his rod, but not this time. This time they have to take the step of faith. That's the only way we'll make it into the promised land, walking by faith. And as they put their foot into the water and got their water, their foot wet, the, the waters opened up. Now, most of the time, the Jordan was about 100 feet wide. But during this time of year, it could be as far as a mile wide. It was an incredibly large river. And so they were probably wondering, how is this going to happen? What's, how are we going to get across? And Joshua was probably wondering, how are we going to get a million, you know, three million people across? How is that going to happen? And there he had to wait on the Lord. And as they were waiting on the Lord, God then spoke. A key in scripture, wait on the Lord, then he speaks. And as they waited on the Lord, the Lord spoke. And then he gave the plan. And God was able to lift uh, Joshua up as he had lifted Moses up. And God was able to elevate him before the people that they would listen to him and know that he was speaking through him as he spoke through Moses. And then they walked across on dry ground exactly as their fathers and mothers had done and maybe many of them had done as teenagers across the Red Sea. And now they're going across on dry ground. Of course, the Reubenites and the Gadites who left behind going, whoa, here they're already missing out on some of the experiences that God had for them because they stayed on the other side of the Jordan, they're already missing out on the neat things that God is doing and would be doing. We want to cross on over. How do we do it? We've got to step out in faith. I love Peter. When Jesus is walking on the water, he says, Lord, if you're willing, you know, call for me to come, if it's really you. Now, he didn't presumptuously say, you know, I've got a plan. I'm just going to jump out of the boat and, and then God's going to be out on the limb and he's got to help me walk. That's presumption. We don't do that. You hear people say that from some time, you know. I feel like going to Arizona. I don't have any money. I don't have any gas in my car, but I'm just going to drive by faith, you know. And then they're in El Centro giving us a call going, hey, send us some gas money. 
that's presumption. That's stupidity. Just stepping out in faith. No, you're not. You're stepping out in presumption. You're saying, I'm going to do it and God's on the line to bless it. No. You heard the word of the Lord. Peter heard God say, come on out. Okay, now the word of God's there. So now it's not presumption, it's faith. He stepped out and he began to walk on the water. But you might say, well, he sunk. But he also walked. Now, did he drown? No, he didn't. The Lord caught him. You hear the word of the Lord. You step out in faith. You take a couple feet and you start to sink. The Lord will catch you. Your faith may give out half the way, but the Lord's faith will sustain you. We don't need a lot. We need the size of a mustard seed. We can move mountains. Remember in Acts chapter 12, Peter was there in prison. James had just been killed. And it says they got together at John's Mark's house and they were praying for Peter's release. And the angel came and released Peter and they came to the house. And there he knocked outside on the gate and Rhoda, the servant girl, came and she comes back in. Hey, it's Peter. They're going, no, 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 it couldn't be Peter. He's in prison. And they kept on praying, Lord, release Peter, you know. And she goes back outside and she goes, no, it's Peter. I'm telling you, oh, maybe it's his ghost or something, but it can't be him because he's in prison. And then, of course, they came in going, oh, gee, we were praying for that. So often we're shocked when we shouldn't be. The, Jesus cursed the fig tree and it died. And the next day they saw it dead and they're saying, whoa, the fig tree you cursed, it actually died. He said, what did you expect? I cursed it. And then he says, now I say to you, when you pray, believe that what you pray, you received it. And I say to you, you'll do a lot greater things than this. You'll speak to mountains, be uprooted and cast into the sea, and it will be done for you. Jesus loves the faith. We see the woman with the hemorrhage. She reached out and touched his garment, and she was healed. All kinds of people were touching him. And Jesus said, who touched me? Lord, everybody's touching you. But yet she didn't just touch him. She touched him believing that the moment I touch him, I'll be healed. And she released that faith, and she was healed. They're the four buddies of the guy who was lame. They start jumping from roof to roof because Jesus, the house was crowded. And as he jumped from roof to roof, they finally came to the place and just started ripping the roof apart. They're dust and clay and stuff falling in Jesus' hair. And, and there comes this guy. Jesus wasn't annoyed. He loves it. He just looked at those guys and says, man, your faith has made this guy whole. He loves their faith. It encouraged him. God loves it when we take him at his word and we step out in faith. It's always a scary first step. But think about it. Peter did it. The winds, the waves are blowing. They're about ready to sink. And Peter's like seeing the Lord walking going, hey, tell me to come. Right out there in the winds and the waves and these giant crashing in on the boat and there he just steps out all or nothing he dies or the Lord's word is true we all have to come to that place you can either choose to walk by faith or God will choose it for you but if you are a believer you will and must walk by faith in every area of your life God will bring you to the place where you will do what his word says either because of I'm so stuck if I, I have no other choice now. Or willingly. Just, yeah, absolutely. That's what I want to do. 
I encourage you to do it willingly. Just make that step of faith. Take God at his word and do it. The Bible says they rose early in the morning. Jesus rose early in the morning. It says, morning by morning, he quickened my ear to hear. While it was still dark, Jesus arose and went out and prayed. But when I get up early in the morning, I'm tired. Step out by faith. Start living in God's strength. Maybe you've been living in your own flesh strength, and you're right, that will give out. You got up early, and now at noon, and you're just so tired because you got up early, and now, now you're going to start operating in God's strength. Start saying, God, give me your strength. And all of a sudden, you start going to bed earlier. You get into less trouble that way. <laughs> Interesting, they've done a study on sleep, and they found that the hours before midnight are the deepest hours of sleep. That after midnight, it's hard to get into that REM sleep. That most of the REM sleep, the easiest and the most amount of REM sleep you experience is before midnight. And they discovered that if you can get two hours of sleep before midnight, that really after midnight, all you need is a couple hours of sleep. Whether you get two or, or six more hours of sleep, the effect on your body is very little. The amount that it helps you after that is very little. But those two hours before midnight are incredibly strengthening. Spurgeon always went to bed every night at 10 o'clock. Even if he had a house full of guests, he would get up and he'd say, at 10 o'clock, it's time for all gentlemen to retire. Good night. And he'd go right to his bed. And his wife would usher everybody out the door. It's because he was dedicated. He just said, man, I've got to give God the first and the best. And if I'm all tired, I don't want to do that. And he did something the Lord showed him. God will speak to you. God will talk to you. But have that step of faith of what God is showing you to do. And whatever he's showing you to do out of the word, do it. It's a scary first step. But God will begin to open the waters before you. And he'll make the land dry. And what happens? Others are benefited. Others are blessed. Because they also get to cross over on your step of faith. Lord, we thank you for your word tonight. And God, I pray that you would exalt all my brothers and sisters that at work and in their neighborhood and in their family, that they would be exalted, that they would look on them saying, wow, the Lord is with that person. And Lord, many tonight are stuck in a rather difficult place. They're at that place they either walk by faith or there's no other help for them. Many tonight have, things are going well, and, and they're just going to choose that life of faith. To read your word and to take it at face value and to act upon it as your Holy Spirit speaks to them the living word of God. Lord, we ask that you would encourage us, enlighten us, strengthen us in the knowledge of you. That our hearts would burn within us as you open the word to us as they did on the Emmaus Road. Speak to us, Lord, morning by morning. Give us the ear to hear as a learner and help us to learn and that we'd have the word to sustain the weary in the day. Glorify yourself in these believers, we ask. In Jesus' name.